Well, good morning. We're going to have our second lesson um, of our uh, two-part series where we were looking at work, how we as believers view and uh, fulfill a biblical godly um, perspective of work. And to start off with, I'm going to actually tell a tale of two friends, Bob and Dan. These two guys, they went to college together, so I grew up and knew each other in college. And Bob, he's a landscape uh, contractor. He works with a landscaping company. Uh, he's married. He doesn't have any kids, doesn't have any children. But one of the things that he does is um, the, his church that he goes to, he actually takes care of the landscaping and does the mowing at the church. And there's also two ministries in town where they're at uh, that are crisis pregnancy centers um, that... Uh, um, ministers to women who have um, unplanned and sometimes unwanted pregnancies. And so he takes care of their landscaping as well and just does that as the use of his um, gifts uh, to minister to, to, uh, in that way. But one of the things that he does, and this is kind of neat, is each winter in the off-season when he doesn't have the mowing and the landscaping to do, he takes a month off of work and he goes overseas with his wife, and they'll spend usually about three weeks doing pastoral training, uh, leaning, leading and serving uh, pastors overseas uh, with uh, different types of conferences and training. And then they also take a week afterwards where he and his wife will go off and, and do a vacation in the part of the world where they go to. And it might be a safari uh, one year, or maybe it's a cruise down the Amazon or uh, wherever uh, the Lord might take them. They take a, a week and spend it there and um, see the Lord's creation and um, enjoy that time together as a couple. And then his friend is Dan. Um, Dan is actually a manager at a local hardware store. Uh, he's married. He actually has three elementary age children, so a little bit different life um, than Bob does. But one of the things that Dan wanted to do, he really saw the ministry that Bob had. Uh, and so Dan wanted to emulate that. And so he actually had, uh, close to his house, there was the Baptist Children's Home that does foster and adoption services out of there. And so he volunteered to mow their lawns uh, for them and, and uh, take care of their landscape. And uh, with his push mower, he didn't quite have um, <laughs> the same commercial equipment that uh, Bob did. But Dan uh, um, would take about three hours uh, just to do the mowing of the Baptist home. And eventually, it was about halfway through the summer, um, it, it literally just got a little bit too much for him to where he wasn't being able to do what he needed at home. And so ended up having to stop about halfway through his first summer that was there. Um, but one of the things he also did, I mean, he did have a heart to serve. And so he also uh, took a month off, took four weeks off of work uh, to go over, um, not overseas, but I guess over border, uh, went to Mexico. And um, ministered and served uh, some local churches there, doing some uh, um, work and um, laboring for the churches there. And he really trusted God to provide. Um, and uh, when he came back, um, he did not have his job waiting for him. So his uh, employer let him go. And unfortunately, his wife and kids um, did not hang around as well. So what's the difference between these two men? Bob is a faithful servant of the Lord, a servant of the church, and Dan, a fool. Though their works were similar, what they participated in were very, very much in line with each other. 
The difference between the two men was a matter of vocation. You could define work, and one author did, work as what creatures do with God's creation. If work is what I do with, God has, with what God has created, vocation could be seen as, literally it means a calling, but vocation could be the way or the ways in which we work and make ourselves useful for others. So work might be what I literally do with the creation that God has created, but vocation would be how using work I make myself useful to other people. And last week, if you were here, um, the first message that we had, we saw that your created purpose was to glorify God by working to fill the earth with His very image and likeness. And this idea of working to fill the earth with the image and likeness of God, it can be a little bit ethereal. It might be a little bit nebulous. Um, How do I know, am I filling the earth with the image of God right now? Or how am I not doing this right now? Um, What does it really mean in my day-to-day lives? Am I being faithful today in filling the earth with the image and likeness of God? Well, what we're going to do is today, the message today is really going to see how God has called us to fulfill what our created purpose was that we looked at last week. And so if you were not here um, last week, that message is online. And so um, something that um, um, I encourage you to go back and and listen to because it's really going to shape a lot of what we're looking at today because we're going to see today how do we actually fulfill that created purpose in our church, and in our lives. So the goal really is to put some legs onto the truth that we looked at and really gain an understanding of how to put this into practice um, on our Sunday through um, Saturday week. So today what we're going to do, we're actually going to examine three controlling factors that lead you to fulfill your created purpose by loving God and loving man through your God-given vocations. We're going to see that God's creation mandates that they control why we work in our calling. We're going to see that God's great commandments, the commandments to love God and love your neighbor, that they control how we work in our calling. And then thirdly, we're going to see that God's giftings to us control to what end we work in our calling. So let's start in a word of prayer before we jump into his word. Our God and Father, we find that we are in need of you to open our understanding and open our eyes to the truths in your word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would just reveal the truths that you have given us in your scripture, and may we see how we can apply these to shape our lives so that we can be more faithful in how we live and work in our lives. We pray just for your blessing on your word, and may you conform us to the image of your son. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. 
Okay. You fulfill your created purpose by loving God and loving man through your God-given vocations. This is the thrust of the message of what we're looking at today. So let's start first, though, by addressing what we mean by our vocation or our calling. So we're probably all very comfortable, and it's rightly so, we're very comfortable and familiar with our call to salvation, God calling us to salvation. And um, it's very biblical. I don't think anyone here would, would disagree with that. And we find this in you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, uh, Romans 9, verse 24, Galatians 1, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Romans 8, 29. I mean, we, we could name verse after verse where we're all very familiar with the fact that God has called us to salvation, that there is a calling to salvation. What I want to look at, though, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you can go ahead and flip there. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but this is going to be a good place to start. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find Martin Luther, the reformer, he actually unpeeled a theology of vocation and calling that really was not commonly understood in his day. So in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, we actually find multiple times in, in short succession where Paul gives direction to believers about their callings. And the callings aren't exclusively referring to salvation. It does address within this chapter the call to salvation but not exclusively. And so Luther's understanding on on vocation and calling really came out of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, and also verse 20. And these are are very pivotal pivotal, um, verses that Luther really clung to. And in verse 17, it says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which he has called him. So only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So the principle of calling in life is really so essential within this passage that Paul repeats this same um, idea about calling in verse 20 and verse 24. And within this whole chapter, he applies the calling to marriage, to your ethnicity, and also to slavery. And one author actually summarized um, this whole section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 7. um, And he said, 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that work and relationships are not domains freely chosen. Some people will have a problem hearing that, right? Right. But he says, work and relationships are not domains freely chosen as much as places the Lord assigns. That is, a person's major social relations are not primarily matters of individual choice, but are assigned based largely on class, family history, and gender. And it is to see our web of relationships as divinely assigned places to serve God and neighbor. So in short, you are not the keeper of your own destiny. Rather, God has called you for his purposes, not just in your salvation, 
but also in your life. So let me repeat that phrase. It says, God has called you for His purposes, not just in your salvation, but also in your life. And there's several verses we can go to and see this even reiterated throughout um, uh, the Scripture, but you can look in Proverbs 16.9. We're probably very familiar with this. It says, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. And that's echoed in Proverbs 19. Verse 21, many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. Or Psalm 31, verses 14 and 15, it says, but I trust you, O Yahweh. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. God has called you for his purposes, not just in your salvation, but also in your life. So understanding that, let's talk about vocation. Vocation simply means calling. They're interchangeable. So here's a great breakdown of calling and vocation by an author. He says, for a Christian, the first and most important calling is to trust and obey Jesus. Through our union with him, we live out our callings in other arenas of life of family, church, community, neighborhood, occupation, or place of employment. Each of these arenas, then, is a vocation wherein we are called to love God and love others. The only one, for most people, provides us a paycheck. We understand? We have many vocations, many callings. One of those probably gives us income for our family. So in this lesson, what we're going to be doing is discussing calling and your vocations. What we're referring to is the same thing that Martin Luther pointed out in 1 Corinthians 7, as the life that the Lord has assigned to you and to which God has called you, your vocations. So with this understanding, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually show you three controlling factors that leads you to fulfill your created purpose by loving God and loving man through your God-given vocations. So the first one, God's creation mandate controls why you work in your calling. And for this, this is really going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through chapter 2, verse 15. And this point, point number one, is literally last week's message, okay? So rather than reteaching it, again, you know, it's, uh, if you weren't here, um, I encourage you to go back and listen to, uh, to that message. But in short, in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 1, we find that God, after he creates man, he commands them, he, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his image and likeness man and woman. He commands them to subdue the earth and have dominion over the living things. So this is what we call the creation mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion over. So this is why we work in our vocations. We are working to fill the earth with God's very image and likeness. Why do we toil 
Why do we toil at our work in our various vocations? It's not to retire. It's not for self-fulfillment. It's greater than either one of these. We are filling the earth with the image and likeness of God. So to sum up, and this, this is great, we took three minutes and got through point one, right? <laughs> so, so looking at the application of this first one, why are you doing the things that you do in life? At work, at family, here in church, the boards that you serve on, the soccer teams that you coach, are you focused on preaching to your own heart and to yourself that your motivation is that your created purpose is to glorify God by working to fill the earth with his image and likeness? God's creation mandate is why we work in our calling. It's why we do it. But what about how? <laughs> so point one last week, how do we actually do this? How do we do this? And this is what's going to take us um, into the next point. To answer how we work in our calling, we're going to see that God's great commandments control how you work in your calling. And for this purpose, let's spend some time and look in Matthew chapter 22. If you would go ahead and turn there. So Matthew chapter 22, what, we, what we're going to find is... In, in context, we've had the Sadducees have just come and presented Jesus with a dilemma. It's a gotcha question. And we have these seven brothers that all marry the same woman, and you know, therefore it's impossible to have um, a resurrection. Gotcha, Jesus, how are you going to answer this? And he answers, and he silences them. And immediately after this, we have that the Pharisees hear what happened. And so in verse 34... We're going to start reading in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. This is our war planning party right here. We've got to figure out our game plan. Verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. They weren't looking for the answer. They were trying to catch him, just like the Sadducees were trying to do. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, this is why this is a gotcha question. So, you notice he says, what is the great commandment in the law? And they actually had a compilation of 613 mitzvot, is what they called this. This was a gathering together of 613 individual commandments that God had given within the law, the first uh, five books of, almost slipped on that one. <laughs> so, yeah, first five books of the Old Testament. And we want to know what is the great commandment. And this is why this is so good, because whichever one he chooses, he's going to have to neglect others. And we've already got our defense to be able to show why you have now um, not been faithful to Scripture. Whatever answer you give, we're, we're going to be able to have a rebuttal for you. But in verse 37, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. All that you are, what makes you, you love the Lord your God. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus' answer, love God with your whole self, which was Deuteronomy 6.5. And number two, love others as yourself, Leviticus 19 verse 18. And notice how Jesus answered. He said, this is the great and the first commandment. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus is laying out for us what is the great and the foremost or first commandment. He says, you must shape how you work in your vocation by your understanding that the command to love God with all that you are is the great and foremost. It is not a great, it is singularly great. The name of this commandment is the great commandment. So I was talking with some brothers a couple weeks ago, and we were, as illustration, we were talking, and I mentioned in Brazil, if you were to be talking about football there or soccer for us, and if you referenced the great in Brazil, it is always and only referring to the world's first great soccer player. Who knows who that is? Pele, yeah, exactly. So he happened to be from Brazil, there in that country. So in that context of Brazilian soccer, if you mention the great, it is always and only referring to Pele. There's no question about it within that context. So likewise, Jesus is saying loving God is the great. The command that you shall love God is the foremost command but it's also the great command. Love God. But let me ask a question. If this is the great, the foremost command, loving God, why does Jesus then not let it stand on its own? Why doesn't he just answer the question? Why does he immediately add command number two? In verse 40, on these two commands, he says, depend all the law and the prophets both loving God and loving your neighbor. So Jesus answers the lawyer's question by going above and beyond what was asked of him. So the lawyer asked, what's the greatest? And Jesus says, here's the greatest too. The lawyer says, what's the greatest in the law, the Torah, those first five books? And Jesus says, you get the whole scripture which includes the law and the prophets and the writings, all of those together. And the law and the prophets was shorthand for saying Scripture. Just as today we might say the Old and New Testament, we would mean from Genesis to Revelation, the law and the prophets would be shorthand for God's written revelation um, at that time. So not only does the first command earn the position of the great, but the two commands together, they actually position, um, possess a special position of supporting all of Scripture. The law and the prophets are what, turn it the other way around. <laughs> so all of Scripture depend on, the law and the prophets depend on these great two commandments. Jesus is saying, that the commandments were more than just the foremost in the law, as the lawyer had asked. He was saying, 
living scripturally, biblically, it actually depends on loving God and loving your neighbor. Literally, if you don't follow these two commands, you have missed the mark and failed in the entirety of your understanding and obedience to Scripture. Love God with all you are. You have in the book of Leviticus alone, over 70 times, it says, Be holy, for I, Yahweh, am holy. There are laws on purity, personal purity. There are no killing of animals in a field. Why would there be a law of no killing of animals in the field? Because God said he did not want the people to be tempted to sacrifice to the demons or to other gods in the field. So what was there a law for? They were to take the animal to the priest who would kill it, drain its blood, offer it to God, and then you can go take your animal and eat it. We have no other gods before me. They're to remember the Sabbath. You're to keep it holy. You're to keep God's name holy. The law rests upon loving God and exalting him. And secondly, loving your neighbor. Go ahead and let's flip to Leviticus 19. And I'm going to read a few verses here. And this is going to help just understand in a little way how the law in Scripture rests and depends on even loving your neighbor. In Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9, listen to these laws that are laid out. What are they saying? Verse 9, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruits of your vineyard. Why? Because you're to love your neighbor. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am Yahweh your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane, profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am Yahweh. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. What are all of these saying? The next words. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Do you see how the law, Scripture, depends on these two commands. Love God, love man. God's great commandments, they control how we work in our calling. So we might say, okay, I'm ready to love God and love man in my calling. I'm ready to do that. But what is my calling? <laughs> what are my vocations? We need to answer that question. 
So what are your vocations that we should be shaping by these great commandments? And we'll start off by saying that, and, and this, this is common in our American culture as well, but scripture, it often identifies people by their work. We do this. You meet somebody and say, what do you do? What's your job? What, what is your vocation? We have Matthew who called Pilate the governor. David is called the king. Nathan, the prophet. Lydia, who is Lydia? How was she identified? Yeah, the seller of purple cloth, right? Luke was the beloved physician. Jesus, who was he? The carpenter, the prophet, the teacher. Now, of course you're more than your vocation. If a window washer is also a father, also a soccer coach, a jazz pianist, a toddler room worker, a prison volunteer, well, we miss the man if we stop at window washer. We're more than what we do as our occupation, but our occupation is part of our vocation. Your vocations are what we started off looking at in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. If you are in a place in life where God has assigned you, love God there. Love others there. In your vocations, in your callings in life, how are you working? How are you letting the outflow of your love of God and love of man shape what you do in your vocations? Are the decisions you make the result of loving your neighbor or of loving yourself? What about at home with the family? Are you seeking to love your wife, love your children, or love yourself? In church, are we seeking to love our neighbor and our Lord, or are we seeking to exalt ourselves and even give ourselves comfort in our church? What about our vocations that pay us, our employment, where we work? Do you have a career that benefits your neighbor? Do it for them. When you go to work at 8, 9 o'clock, do it for the good of your neighbor. Are you in a career, let me ask this, are you in a career that does not benefit your neighbor? Are you possibly a day trader who is working to build up a big enough of a nest egg so that you can retire early? I might recommend changing careers. In your career, in your calling, in your vocations, are you doing them for the love of your neighbor and the love of God? And I think it would be a no-brainer if you're in a vocation that is to the detriment of someone. Drug dealers need to quit. I mean, that one's an easy one, right? So that one's kind of an easy one. But when we love God and love others, if your career, career is a barrier 
to you fulfilling these two commands, it's easier to change your career than it is to change the words of God. So, we've looked at, so far, two controlling factors that lead us to fulfill our created purpose by loving God and loving man in our vocations. So, we're going to switch gears a little bit as we examine the third factor. So, please go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to end our time there. And we're going to see more specifically God's gifting that's to us, God's gifting to us, okay? Now, the first two controlling factors that we looked at, they came from universal commands to his people. This, they apply to everyone. So we see that there is a creation mandate to fill the earth with his image and likeness. We see that we are to love God and love our neighbor and our entire lives should rest upon this. So these two principles, they apply to everyone. What, what I'd like to look at, though, is to look at a specific vocation, a specific call, calling that applies to each one of us in our lives if you are a believer. Our other vocations, not everyone has the same vocations. We have mothers, there's teachers, there's bankers, fathers, employees, managers, business owners, soccer coaches. They're all vocations that any of us may or may not possess. But if you are Christ's, you do have a vocation. You do have a calling to the body of Christ. And so I want to look specifically at this vocation. And here we're going to see that God's giftings must control to what end we are working within our calling within the body of Christ. So let's go ahead and read in um, Ephesians uh, chapter 4. But as we do, I want you to have an ear for the love and the unity that exists in the body. Okay, so pay attention to the love and the unity, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. According to Paul, how are we to walk or live worthy of our calling? It's by loving your neighbor. Notice what he says. He says, walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is walking, loving your neighbor as yourself. And the question is, why are we to walk in love with each other? He says, because there is great unity of our faith. Loving your neighbor as yourself is loving the body that you are a part of. Notice the unity that describes our faith. He says, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. 
One faith, one baptism, just like there is one God and Father of all. But unity is not uniformity. Okay, we have unity because we have been called in unity, but there's not uniformity within the body. Look in verse 7. But grace was given, the first gift. It says grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God, he has gifted you, making you a steward for which you will give an account of your faithfulness of this stewardship. In 1 Peter 4, in verse 10, it says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Your giftings are from God, and they are for the common good of the body of Christ. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 4, it says, Now there are a variety of gifts, and then verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has given his children gifts. And he has given these gifts to be employed for the good of others. Now, looking at the, the last gift that we actually have in, in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, starting in verse 11, we're going to see a gift that we're told that we are given um, as being members of the body of Christ. He says, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You were given a gift. That gift is the shepherds, the pastors of our church. That gift has the purpose to train and equip you for the work of ministry within Christ's body. That is why they were given to us. You were given gifts, including your church leaders, for the purpose of helping and equipping you to be faithful in your vocation and the calling within your church body. Are you using your gifts, both the individual gifts, as well as the gifts to the church of the shepherds or pastors? Are you using them to build up the body of Christ? This is why they are here. This is why they have been entrusted to us. This is why you have been saved. We're all very familiar with Ephesians 2.10 that we were saved, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were saved for this reason. We were created to fill the earth with the image and likeness of God. This is why we are in this vocation of our church. We were saved to love God and love our neighbor. And this is what shapes how we work and serve within the body. What is it that we do to love God and love our neighbor? But notice here why I say in Ephesians 4 
why I say to what end we are to work within our calling. To what end are you to work and serve in the body of Christ? Well, this passage that we look at, that, we, that we're looking at here, it's going to show us to what end we are to serve within our vocation of the local church. In verse 13, we are to do the works of service, building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That is the end that we are working towards. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to work until we all attain to the unity of faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So you could say, when do we get to stop doing the work in our church? When do we get to retire from church service? When we all together have unity in our faith. When we all together have unity in the knowledge of, our son of, of, of the Son of God. And just to clarify the point, it's not a race to ignorance and a unity in our lack of knowledge. He actually says, nope, it's unity to mature manhood. How mature? To the measure of the stature of Christ himself. So in essence, for us, what are we working towards? We are to do the works of service to build up the body of Christ until every believer in the church has as much faith and knowledge of Christ as Christ himself has. That's when we get to stop, right? That is the end to which we are working. So what are we working towards? Well, we're working towards the building up of the body of Christ until God takes us home. That is the end to which we are working. We are working so that the body would be strong and mature in faith, not blown around. We are working so that the body would be built up to be loving, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're working so that the body would be Christ-like to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the end to which we are working in the vocation of our local church. So one of our many vocations in life is the member of the body of Christ. And we could look at any of these vocations that we ha might have in our lives. Family, parent, boss, ad infinitum. It goes on and on. We could look at a vocation of adoptive parents. We have parents who are called to adoption. And one of the, th one of the stories that um, we were sharing in ISI yesterday is a family, no children, believers who became aware of a family, seven children, who had for two years not been able to be adopted. They were spread between three homes. 
So what did they do? They looked at Scripture, saw that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of her God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And so this married couple, no children, are in the process right now of adopting these seven sibling groups. And uh, just so you know, I know some of the people in the church are aware, they live in Little Elm. They currently have everything that any you know, couple with no kids would have. They're in need of everything that a couple with seven kids will need. Um, and so we're working actually with the adoption agency right now to provide beds. Actually, the, the, I was talking with uh, um, the administrator of the adoption agency, and she was like, we need toothbrushes and toothpaste. I mean, it's, it's everything. So if you have things, let me know. We can get it to them. We've got about a week and a half before the children are coming home, right? But this is their vocation. This is their calling. It might not be yours, It's not everyone's. We know that. But we all have vocations that we're a part of. The reason we were looking at this vocation of the church is because each one of us, if you are his, you are a member of the body of Christ. But these same principles apply whether you're talking about your vocation in your church or a vocation that might be unique to you unlike anyone else here. You are to work to fill the earth with his image. You are to serve. How? By loving God and loving your neighbor. That is why we do it. We are to do the works of service to build up the body of Christ for the glory of God. Whichever vocation you find yourself in, ask yourself this question. Why am I working here? How am I working here? Check your heart. Am I working to reach retirement so I can stop? Am I working because it is fulfilling to me and I enjoy it? Am I working for some self-serving reason? To what end am I working? Is it to love my neighbor and to love God, or is it to love myself? Think back to Bob and Dan. Bob used his vocations to fulfill God's mandate in love. He was mowing to support the ministries. He was using his career as a ministry the time that his career provided for him was for serving. He ministered to his wife, making sure that we carve out that time, that week, to minister towards her. Dan worked by imitating what he saw in Bob. He was imitating someone else's vocation. He ministered against his career schedule. He left his calling as a husband in a father. So what do you do? What are your vocations? Remember, you fulfill your created purpose by loving God and loving man through your God-given vocations. Examine where God has assigned and called you. In 1 Corinthians 7:17, where have I been assigned? 
to where have I been called? You have been entrusted and assigned with vocations. Ask yourself, what can I do now to spread God's image here? What can I do to love my neighbor here? What can I do that intersects my calling, my vocation, with my work, my ministry? It will be different from the person sitting next to you. But the controlling factors will be the same for each one of us. Those three controlling factors that we looked at today will lead you to fulfill your created purpose by loving God, loving man, through the vocations he has entrusted to you and assigned to you. God's creation mandate controls why we work in our vocations. The great commandments, they control how we work. And his giftings to you, they will control to what end we work in our vocations. I encourage you, examine your vocations, identify them, write them down, and ask, how can I fulfill God's calling in my life where he has assigned me? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that your word is clear. We pray that you would impress upon our hearts to examine our lives and look and see how we can best fulfill, make the most use of the time that you've entrusted to us for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. We pray this in your son. Amen.